See, death feels final so, so often, doesn't it? I actually think that, you know, in, in, in church, you know, in, in, in 2021 and in recent years, like, we, we just probably don't talk about death enough. Um, you know, I mean, like, we view death through the lens oftentimes that it's, it's just final. It's, it's, it's the end. Like, Jesus has never looked at it that way. God has never looked at it that way. Jesus makes it very clear in this statement, like, death is not the end. He's saying, like, I am the solution to this problem. I have brought the answer to this problem. He's saying, like, I get the last word. Death doesn't get the final say here. I get the last word. I get the final say. I get the, I get the, the chance to decide what I'm going to do. This is what Jesus is really communicating here. That even though it may look like death, it will not end in death. It's a prophetic declaration Jesus is making. He is prophesying over this specific situation. And I, and I really believe that, that this is what the, you know, the Spirit of God wants to communicate to many of us here today. Because, because death looks different for, 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 for you know, many of us in here today. I mean, it's not maybe just a physical death. While that's true, but there are those of us who have experienced death in many other ways. We've experienced death like in our careers death in, in relationships. We're experiencing death, you know, in our emotions and in many other cases. And there is this prophetic message Jesus communicates over Lazarus, which I, I believe he wants to communicate over many of us today, that even though it may look like death, it will not end in death. We're kicking off a brand new teaching series today. I'm excited about it. It's called I Am. And uh, man, I, I, I can, let me just tell you, like, like so much of the passion, so much of the purpose behind this series is because in 2021, whether you realize it or not, uh, there is actually a lot of speculation about who Jesus is, right? You might be surprised to, to even learn that the speculation about who Jesus is is not entirely found in secular culture. In fact, some of the speculation about who Jesus is exists within the church as well. And that's kind of why we want to step into this space today, and over the next couple months, uh, we, want to, we want to just make it very clear who, who he is. Now, let me just acknowledge, as we get started, just some of the tension that exists uh, maybe in us and even around us. You know, Jesus certainly is one of the most controversial figures in culture, right? Uh, he is certainly, uh, you know, one of the most enduring figures throughout all of human history. I mean, the world just can't seem to get rid of him, Right? And, uh, and so it seems like, like because of this, everywhere we look, like people have opinions on who Jesus is. All these different thoughts, all these different opinions on who Jesus is. They have opinions on, you know, what he taught. There's all these opinions on, you know, uh, you know, it, you know what his mission really was. You know, there's a lot, a lot of thoughts on that. Like, why did he, why did he really do the things? That he did, but I, I want to make a clear distinction as we just launch into the series today. And if you're taking notes, it's 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 going to be really important for you to catch this. In this series, we want to get we want to get our minds around not just what Jesus did, but who he is. Okay, in this series, we want to get our minds around not just what Jesus did, but who he is. We don't want to just focus on on everything you know Jesus you know did that was miraculous, everything he just sort of accomplished. We want to get our minds around who he is. In the belief that understanding who he is, you know, would, would embolden and strengthen our faith in what he has said he has done on our behalf, okay? So the question that's kind of before all of us today is, so who, who is he? Who is he? 
You know, I, I, think, I think so often we can just sort of go through life with this very limited, very preconceived notion about who Jesus is. You know, so many people have an idea. So many people have an opinion. So many people have a story about Jesus. Even people who aren't followers of him, right, have an idea, an opinion, a story, or whatever. So I think the question of, of most importance uh, that we want to ask today is, who does Jesus say he is? Who does Jesus say he is? In fact, throughout the entire Gospel of John, Jesus makes some shocking claims about himself. He makes some radical claims about himself. And so over the next two months, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. And we're going to be looking specifically at these very famous I am statements that Jesus makes about himself. Now, it's very important for you to understand as we launch something very, very important to know about the Gospel of John. John wrote his entire Gospel to make the case for why Jesus is worth believing in. He wrote his entire gospel this way, to make the case for why Jesus is worth believing in. Look at John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 with me this morning. It says this. It says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. I mean, first of all, that's, that's just an incredible scripture, right? Like, what else could have been, could have been mentioned? In verse 31, he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So John is saying, like, the things I've included in this book, the things that I've written down, I've pinned down, they, they, they are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, in part, for him to accomplish his mission of, you know, making a case for why Jesus is worth believing in, John pens, or he writes down, Really, eight shocking claims that Jesus makes about himself. Famously, there's seven. Pastor Josh and I were looking through, you know, the Gospel of John, and we felt like there's, there's eight. And so we're going to give you eight over this series. But, but for, you know, for John, you know, to, to kind of accomplish his mission, he writes down these shocking claims Jesus makes about himself. Now, to be honest with you, this series could have very easily just been called Jesus According to Jesus. Okay, because we're not going to be hearing, you know, any external opinions about who Jesus is. In this series, we're just going to let Jesus speak for himself. Okay? In this series, we're going to let him tell us who he is in his own words. You good with that? You good with that? Okay, so as we get started today, we're going to jump into one of the I am statements of Jesus. But before I do that, I think it's really important to give some context to these statements. The context, I think, is going to enrich what we learn. It's going to enrich our experience this morning. But in order to really give you proper context, I've got to take you all the way back to the Old Testament, okay? So in the Old Testament, the Jewish understanding of God would have been Yahweh or Jehovah. Right? These are names they would have known when they referred to God, names they would have used. They would have, they would have talked about God as Yahweh or as Jehovah. Now, interestingly enough... The name God gives himself in the Old Testament is neither of these names. The name that God gives himself in the Old Testament is I am. It's I am. So in this very helpful, very clarifying moment, you know, um, where, where Moses, who is about to lead the children of Israel into, or, or, you know, out of slavery in Egypt, is having this conversation with God, and he, and he says to God, he says, he says, who should I tell them has sent me? 
Okay, so he's essentially, what he's actually, you know, asking God, he's saying, okay, I'm about to go stand in front of, you know, the children of Israel. I'm about to tell them, hey, we're going we're gonna to move on out of here. We're, we're, we're going to, you know, get out of slavery here. He's like, who should I tell them has sent me? To which, to which God very graciously clarifies, and he says, just tell them I am who I am. To which, you know, Moses is like, thank you, that's all I needed to know, right? I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's just very like, what? You know, but like, What's interesting to me here is like this is the name that God like invokes for himself. It's the name he uses for himself. And so God's response to Moses here is Moses is saying like, who shall I tell them has sent me to do this? He's saying like, I, I am who I am. He says, I, I am the source of life. I'm, I'm the source of everything. So what God's getting at in the Old Testament. Now, the reason why it matters to go back and give you that context is because when the Old Testament was translated from the Hebrew language into the Greek, that's, that's what's called the Septuagint. So when you have a Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. So in the Septuagint, when they took that phrase, I am who I am, and they translated it, it became the Greek phrase, egoimi. Egoimi, you go ahead and look at this here on the screen. Egoimi means I, yes, I am, okay? So, Jesus, so, so, so God, when he's talking to Moses here in the Old Testament, He's saying, I am who I am. He's saying, you know, I, yes, I am. And what's, what's important about this is that, is that when we speed up to the New Testament and we start to look at the Gospel of John and these, these, these shocking claims Jesus makes about himself, this phrase right here, ego I me, I, yes, I am, is the exact phrase Jesus uses in all of his I am statements in the Gospel of John. Pretty big deal. Pretty big deal. The use of this word in the New Testament is, is, is basically claiming that the God of the Old Testament and Jesus are the same person. And so Jesus is making this claim. In fact, he's making this claim many times over that he is the God of the Old Testament. And ultimately, this is what would cost him his life. I mean, I mean this is what would cost I mean, Jesus was, was living in a Jewish context where they, they would have known these scriptures of the Old Testament. They would have known about this encounter that Moses had had with Yahweh. They would have known that Yahweh had invoked the name I am for himself. It was something that they would have never uttered themselves. It was, you know, uh, you know very, very holy, you know, term, one they would not have ever used. And so for Jesus to be going around teaching, making statement after statement after statement, invoking ego I me, uh, I mean, this is ultimately what, what led to his, his death. It cost him his life. And so this is a, a pretty important teaching series, in, in my opinion, and I'm excited to jump into it with you uh, today. And I want to do so by, by just launching into one of his several I am statements. And uh, we're going to launch with one today that, that is a great follow-up to last week. It's found in John eleven twenty five through 26, and it just says this. Jesus said to her, talking about Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So this I am statement, he says, I am, ego I am. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, a resurrection, like we talked about a little bit last week, is when something has died and then comes back to life. So Jesus is looking at Martha, and he is, he is telling her, very clearly, he is saying, like, this is not just an event. He's saying, like, like, this is not just an event. This is who 
I am. He's saying like resurrection, the resurrection is not just like a moment in history. It's not just something that happened one time. It's not just something that, that's about to happen even. He's, he's making it very clear to Martha that the resurrection is not an event. He's saying like this is who I am. If you're taking notes, I want you to look at this thought with me. Jesus here in this, in this I am statement, he is making his claim of deity by invoking the phrase I am. But he also is making the claim that as God, he is the giver of life and has power over death. Pretty significant claim he's making here. Not just that he is the God of the Old Testament, but that he is the giver of life and that he has power over death. So in the Old Testament, the creator of life is God. It's Yahweh, right? It's, it's Jehovah. The creator of life in the Old Testament is God. And in Genesis, in the garden, he is granting life to creation. He's breathing new life into Adam and Eve. Paul, interestingly enough, he, he writes in Romans, you know, uh, something that, 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 that sometimes we can miss, you know, when we're just reading through the Old Testament. You know, we, we can kind of just, you know, kind of read through it and just sort of pass by it. Paul comes along in the New Testament, and, and he begins to describe Jesus as this second Adam. So we have the first Adam in Genesis, Adam and Eve, right? And we know what happened there. We know about the fall. We know about how through Adam's decision, sin entered the world and brokenness came. Well, Paul writes in Romans, and, and he really, it's referenced in multiple epistles, that, that Jesus has come now as the second Adam. And that this second Adam was righteous and that he was blameless in all of his ways. And that Jesus as this second Adam really came to undo what Adam did and to reverse the curse of sin. So Romans chapter 5 talks about, you know, where Adam brought death and decay, Jesus brings life, and he brings restoration. This is significant, okay? It's significant. So look at this with me. In Romans chapter 5, verse 18, it says this. The Paul, Paul writes this, and he says, Just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. That's Adam. So also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. This is Jesus, Okay? So Jesus, in, 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 back to John 11, when, when he says on the resurrection and the life, he is revealing that he has really come as this second Adam, bringing resurrection power and bringing life where the first Adam offered us only death, okay? So this is, this is, this is like really important to understand. Jesus comes, and he comes to, to bring something for us that, that, uh, that, that we couldn't have received on our own. Our inheritance through the first Adam was death and decay, but what we now receive through Jesus is life and its resurrection power. If we're taking notes today, this is, this is like a massive thought for the day, and if, it's, if there's only one thing you take away today, I want you to grab this. Jesus wants to invade our now by taking the hope of our future resurrection and pulling it into the present. Jesus wants to invade our now by taking the hope of our future resurrection and pulling it into the present. What I mean by that is that as followers of Jesus, we have this hope. We carry this hope, don't we? That death is not the end. Like, like, we, we, we believe this as Jesus followers, that death is not the end. That, that when Jesus returns, those who have died will rise. It's, it's, it's this future hope. All of us walk around. We carry this future hope of this, this resurrection, the, the, of Jesus returning, right? That those who have died in Christ will rise at the end. And so this I am statement Jesus makes is, is wildly powerful. It communicates that the hope of the resurrection isn't just out there somewhere, hundreds, even thousands of years 
down the road. It, it, it communicates that it's not just like, like this future hope that we, that we sort of have that's just like a long way off. And maybe one day if we cling on and we wait, like we'll, we'll finally realize it. Jesus is communicating that he wants to pull the future hope of the resurrection into our present reality. He wants to, he wants to take what, what we're all longing for and waiting for that is down the road, you know, for, for many of us hopefully like a long time out. He wants to take this future hope and he wants to pull it into our present now. I just believe Jesus can step into your life, Jesus can step into my life, and he can bring things that are dead, that are dying, and he can bring them right back to life. This is, this is the hope of what Jesus is communicating when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the hope Jesus is communicating when he is saying, look, the resurrection is not just an event in history. He's saying, I am this. His very nature is to take things that are broken and things that are dead and to revive them, to breathe new life into them. And he does this by taking this future hope that we all have and pulling it into our present reality. Now, the context of this bold I am claim by Jesus it really comes within the broader context of another man who has died. It's Lazarus. See, John 11 is, is an incredible story where we, we read about perhaps, you know, one of the, I would say, I would say you know, one, one of the top three to five, you know, miracles we have in, in all of Scripture. We read about another man who has died, and it's Lazarus. Now, Jesus is really good friends with Lazarus, and he's really good friends with Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. They are quite close. And the Bible tells us in John chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her, Mar and her sister Martha. So kind of an interesting uh, you know, distinction here in verse 2. It says, This Mary... Uh, who, who, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Like that, that's a whole other amazing story. But it's the same Mary. Okay. So the sisters sent word to Jesus. This word, th this word they sent to him was, Lord, the one you love is sick. Lazarus is dying. He's on his deathbed. He's, he's a close friend of Jesus. He's a close friend of Mary and Martha. And they send word to Jesus and his disciples, Lord, the one that you love is sick. You notice what's, what they didn't say here? They, they didn't say, you know, the one who loves you is sick. They didn't say the one who loves you is sick. They didn't say because he loves you, that needs to now motivate you to love him back. Because he, he loves you so much, now, now you've got to do something for him since he's done so much for you. They say the one you love is sick. And I, and I think that, that, that the reason why that matters is because you have to start from this sort of foundation in understanding who Jesus is, that he is not motivated to help you based on your love for him. He's motivated to help you based on his love for you. The one you love is sick. It's not about like, like how, how much you, just, you love Jesus that's going to like get him, you know, oh man, I, I'm motivated now. Now I'm going to go help, you know, so-and-so. It, it, it matters that you love Jesus, no doubt. But your, your love for Jesus or your lack of love for Jesus, wherever it is, you know, at, is not what motivates him to move into action on your behalf. It's not what motivates him to love you. He's motivated to help based on his love for you. The one you love is sick. Now, in verse 4, it says, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory 
so that God's son may be glorified through this. So right, I mean, I don't even have time, but right here we sort of get this category for sickness that most of us don't even want to talk about. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't believe that God brings sickness into our bodies at all, but I do believe that the Lord has this, this interesting way of, of pulling purpose out of sickness and pain that we walk through in life. He says it's for God's glory that God's son may be glorified through this. We get this other category for sickness right here. He, he will be glorified here through this story. And, and most of you who know how the story ends know that God becomes glorified. But if you are living in this story, and if you're living in verse 4, in, in, in real time, uh, this doesn't feel very good. If you're living in verse 4, this doesn't help you a whole lot. That the, okay, the sickness went in and death, all right. Uh, it's, but it's for God's glory, right, that you're going through this. For God's glory that, that God's son may be glorified through this. That doesn't, that doesn't feel real great. And what I love about this phrase, I love about, about this verse in verse 4, is that, is that Jesus says the sickness will not end in death. And if you're taking notes, this is really what he's saying. He's saying even though it may look like death, it will not end in death. This is what Jesus is really communicating here. That even though it may look like death, it will not end in death. It's a prophetic declaration Jesus is making. He is prophesying over this specific situation. And I, and I really believe that, that this is what the, you know, the Spirit of God wants to communicate to many of us here today. Because, because death looks different for, 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 for you know, many of us in here today. I mean, it's not maybe just a physical death. While that's true, but there are those of us who have experienced death in many other ways. We've experienced death like in our careers, death in, in relationships. We're experiencing death you know, in our emotions and in many other cases. And there is this prophetic message Jesus communicates over Lazarus, which I, I believe he wants to communicate over many of us today, that even though it may look like death, it will not end in death. This is for God's glory. That even though it may look like you can't have kids, that even though it may, it may, it may look like, like this, this marriage is, is, is you know, on a dead-end path, even though it may look like brokenness and death and decay, even though it looks like death, it will not end in death. And some of you, you know, some of us, we need to, we need to latch on to a, a prophetic declaration like this over our own life, that he is the resurrection and the life. And that even though it looks a certain way, doesn't mean that it's going to end up that way. The story goes on in verses 5 and 6. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I'm going to just, you can leave that right there, but I'm just going to stop for a second. You wonder why, why John felt like it was important to include verse 5? You ever wonder, what, like, like you read this story, you wonder, like, why did John think that this was a necessary detail to add into this story? Well, the reason why is because, because of what's about to come next in verse 6. Jesus, you know, John wants us to know, he wants, he wants to make it very clear to us that Jesus actually loved these people. Because verse 6 doesn't feel like love to me. He says, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, what did he do? Did he get up and leave? Did he get up and rush to Lazarus? Did he get up and go, oh man, we gotta, we gotta leave now, we gotta get out of here. It says he stayed where he was two more days. The reason why verse 5 matters is because, because verse 6 doesn't feel a whole lot like love. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like love at all. I wonder how many of you have ever felt as if God was delayed in his response? How many of you have ever, have ever been walking through a time in your life where it felt like God should have moved a whole lot faster and he didn't? Isn't that some of the tension that we feel when we know that God could and he doesn't? 
And in the story, like John wants to make it very clear to us that, that Jesus really, really deeply loved these people, and yet, and yet he stayed two more days. There is just this, this reality to who God is and his timeline that you and I on this side of heaven will never understand. And oftentimes it can cause us to wonder, man, like, like is he even good? Does he really even love us at all? You go on to verse 17, the story, you know, um, picks up, we're, we're just going skip, to skip several verses, and not because they're not important, just for the sake of time, um, really powerful story, I encourage you to read all of it, go read John 11, it's so good, it'll just encourage you so much, uh, verse, verse 17 tells us that, that Jesus is now arriving at Bethany, he's brought his disciples, and they are now arriving onto the scene, and it says on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been dead in the tomb for four days. He's already dead. He's already gone. He's already buried. Now the Jewish people believed that the spirit of a person would actually remain and hover around a body for three days. So there was actually this superstition in their, in their, you know, in their culture, in their, in their religion. They believed that, that, that the spirit of a person would hover and remain for three days. So, so you know, they, they weren't like, they, they were just like mostly dead, you know? They weren't like, in, like fully dead. Any Princess Bride fans in the house, like, right? They, they were just kind of like mostly, mostly dead, right? And so uh, for three days, and then on like the fourth day, you're like really dead, you know? It's like over. It's gone. Uh, there's no hope. So there was like the superstition they had that, that, that there was maybe a chance that this person was just like sleeping or just like just kidding, you know? And that they could just pop back up within a three-day window. Well, now it's day four. Day four. And I think what's, what's amazing about this story, what always sticks out to me about this story, is that Jesus waits to go to Lazarus until everyone believed it was impossible for him to live again. He waits. He waits until everyone believed it was impossible for him to live again. See, he's not going to share his glory with anyone. And sometimes the delay and sometimes the, 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 the purpose in his timing is, is, is intentional. He's not going to share his glory. And when, and when him stepping into your life or my life can be explained away by, like, you know, some sort of, you know, you know, you know happen you know, ch- chance or, or whatever, whatever it is, like, I, I, he's just not going to do that. He's not going to share his glory. And, and in this story, he waits to go to Lazarus until everyone believes, like, this just wasn't in the cards. There's no way he's coming back to life. You skip down four verses and Jesus begins to interact with Martha. Martha comes out, speaks to her friend Jesus, and she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to catch this thought. Jesus is not surprised when we question his methods. He's not surprised when we question his methods. I wonder, have you ever felt at times in your life, have you ever felt that Jesus was a no-show? You ever had like seasons, you ever had moments, you ever had times of desperation, times where like, 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 you know, if you're going to do anything ever, like this is the last request I have. If, if you would just do this, I'll never ask you for one more thing. Like, have you ever, 
had a moment in your life where you're like so desperate and like Jesus just ends up being a no-show in, in, in many ways. Well, this is where Martha's at in this story. She, she, this is where she is at. She's saying like, like if, 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 you if you would have come, he, he would have lived. If you would have been here, if you would have come, my brother would not have died. Now, I want you just to imagine for a moment. Again, again, we get the privilege of knowing how this story ends. We get the privilege of, of living, you know, much further down in this chapter. But these guys, what are they? In? They're in verse 21. Like, nothing's happened yet. Imagine what it would have been like for, you know, two sisters to try to nurse their dying brother to health while they're waiting on Jesus to arrive, only for Jesus to no-show. Imagine what that would have been like for them. No, no intensive care unit. Right? There's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no, like, emergency room to take him to. They're, 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 like, trying to keep their brother alive. And I don't know if you've ever been around death. Anybody, if you've ever been around death, you know that that's, that's, that's it's always ugly. Death is always ugly. Dignity always goes out the window. There's a gasping for air. Breathing becomes labored. Like, it's just, it's just ugly. Death is always ugly. And... Mary and Martha had watched their brother go through this. They'd watched him suffer and die. Lazarus is losing his life to sickness. And his two sisters are trying to keep him alive until Jesus can get there. And Jesus no-shows and Lazarus dies. Martha is talking with Jesus here. They're having this encounter as like friends would, but it's, it's clear that there's pain. It's clear that Jesus has let her down, and she's thinking about the past few days. She's thinking about the past few days and how they have, have gone on, because he's only been buried for four. I mean, so he's only been dead for a short amount of time. And she's thinking, if you would have been here, he would have lived. If you would have just been here, if you would have just gotten here sooner, this, 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 this would have happened. Like, none of this would have happened I wonder if you've ever done this yourself. You ever done this in your own life? You ever said something very similar to the effect of like, like if you would have just been here, like none of this would have happened? God, if you would have just stepped in, like, like if, you're, if you're as big as you say you are, if you would have just stepped into my circumstance, if you would have just stepped into my situation, like none of this would have ever happened. Like if you saw it coming, why didn't you step in and prevent me from walking through what I went through, I wonder, have you, have you ever done something like this? I think most of us probably have. And then she goes on to verse 22. Verse 22, this is actually just verse 22. It's not, um, says, she says this to Jesus. She says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Now that sounds like, like giant faith, doesn't it? So she's upset. And then she's like, okay, but now I know that, that, that God will give you whatever you ask. I actually want to submit to you that I, I don't think that this is like big time faith. Because of what we read about later in this story, I actually think that this is one of these religious pleasantries. I think this is like bumper sticker theology that, that Martha leverages right here. Stuff that sounds good, but like in the, in the thick of it, in the fire, in the heat of the moment, like it, it doesn't hold up at all. It's bumper sticker theology. It's just a cute, hollow slogan. You know, you know what bumper sticker theology is? It's like, it's like, you know, the bread of life is never stale. You know, people say things like, like, like really, really dumb like that. You know, um, I mean, things that just don't hold up when, like, you're going through something difficult. 
A lot of people do this. They, they say, I'm, I'm just going to say it, even if I don't believe it, I'm just going to say it. And it becomes more of like a superstition than like actual faith. They're like, oh, I'm just, I'm just going like to say that. It's, it's, it becomes a religious pleasantry, something that they think they have to muster up in the moment of, of pain and crisis and, and deep challenge. They think that they have to muster up these like words to come out of their mouth. And I really think that that's what Martha's doing in this story because of what the rest of the story reveals about this. It goes on uh, in, in, into uh, 23, and, and it says this, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Your brother's going to rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So, I want you to think with me for a moment, where is Martha's hope? Where is her hope in this story? It's in a future resurrection, isn't it? That will happen on the last day. Her hope is in some future day, somewhere out there, the last day, that's where her hope is. I know that this isn't the end. Like, she embraces that. She knows this isn't the end. She knows that they'll be reunited at one point, but it's a long ways off. It's certainly not today. The hope that she has is in her future, which isn't wrong. It's not wrong to have your your hope out there. It's not wrong for us to live with hope for a future, a better future, a good future. But what she doesn't realize, and oftentimes what you and I don't realize is that Jesus wants to bring their future hope into their present reality. Jesus wants to bring our future hope into our present reality. And in this story, the next line, the next verse, like literally changes everything. It changes everything. It redefines life. It redefines everything for you and me. In verse 25, Jesus looks at Martha. I mean, look, I mean think about this. Think, put yourself into the story. Imagine yourself like being a fly on the wall. Jesus looks her in the eyes and he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me even though they die, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? It's a pretty radical statement. It's a pretty shocking claim. It's a claim of deity. It's a claim that he is the giver of life and that he has power over death. And nothing has happened yet. The claim actually comes before the miracle. He he, he tells her who he is before he does anything. Now this is a statement, this right here, this I am statement of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, Go go back one. This, This statement is, is, is really significant because it's a statement that really removes all notion that Jesus is just a, a good moral teacher. It completely throws that out the window. You know, um, it's sentences like this where Jesus prevents himself as the solution to the problem that removes from us the ability to say he was just a great teacher. You know, I think that's what a lot of people want to do, that Jesus clearly was a good guy. He clearly said some good things. Because when you read his teachings, like, it's hard to disagree with what Jesus said. In fact, you could, you could throw out the majority of the Bible, but if you just keep the red letters, you know, that were like Jesus' words, like they're incredible. And most people are attracted to the things Jesus said. And they want to just define him as a good moral teacher. The problem is that Jesus never claimed to be a good teacher. He never claimed to be a good moral teacher and that that was all he was. 
Many people call them good teacher. Jesus never made that claim. He never says, like, I'm just a good moral teacher. And let me just, let me just make the statement to you. If, if Jesus wasn't the resurrection and the life, then he had to have been a lunatic, and he certainly wasn't good. For him to make this claim, that he's the resurrection and the life, to make this claim of deity, to say that he is, you know, is, is the author of life and that, and that he has power over death, for him to make this kind of claim and then end up not being the resurrection and the life, then he's, he's clearly not stable. He's clearly a lunatic. He is cl- you know, clearly not good. And so for us to just you know, live in a world that wants to remove this, this uh, you know, from him and say, you know, he's not the resurrection of the life, to, to, to remove deity from him, but still let him be this good moral teacher, it doesn't stand up. It doesn't make sense for him to still be good if those claims he made are not true. If you're taking notes today, I want you to catch this with me today. This I am statement is a big problem if you just want to believe that Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is not claiming to be a great teacher. He's not trying to teach a lesson. He's saying, I am the solution to the problem. He makes the claim that wherever there is death, he is the solution to that problem. That's a big claim. That's a big claim. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's not just someone who said some good things. He is the resurrection and the life. He is egoimi. He is the God of the Old Testament. He is the one who gives life and the one who has power over death. Jesus wants us to to fully understand that the resurrection is is, is not an event and it's not just a holiday. It's not not just some, some future event either down the road. It's like here right now. It's here. It's in this room. It's present. It's available to you. And Jesus quite literally is like looking at Martha and and he's telling her like, I am the resurrection. He's saying like, you are looking at the resurrection. You are staring at it in the eyes. This is the invasion of their future hope into their present moment. This is the kingdom of God being manifested here on earth. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's an invasion of another kingdom into our present moment. It's the hope of another kingdom in our present reality that is filled with very little hope. Jesus is saying, death doesn't get the last word. You see, death feels final so, so often, doesn't it? I actually think that, you know, in, in, in church, you know, in, in, in 2021 and in recent years, like, we, we just probably don't talk about death enough. Um, you know, I mean, like, we view death through the lens oftentimes that it's, it's just final. It's, it's, it's the end. Like, Jesus has never looked at it that way. God has never looked at it that way. Jesus makes it very clear in this statement, like, death is not the end. He's saying, like, I am the solution to this problem. I have brought the answer to this problem. He's saying, like, I get the last word. Death doesn't get the final say here. I get the last word. I get the final say. I get the, I get the, the chance to decide what I'm going to do. I get the last word here. Again, I want to remind you of this, this phrase from earlier, this statement from earlier. Jesus wants to invade our now 
by taking the hope of our future resurrection and pulling it into the present. Jesus wants to invade our now by taking the hope of our future resurrection and pulling it into the present. He doesn't, he doesn't want us just to celebrate the resurrection, okay? He, he, while that's important to do, and we should celebrate the fact that that occurred 2,000 years ago, he wants you to experience the resurrection. He wants, he wants you to actually encounter the power of the resurrection. And one of, way, one of the ways this happens is through the Spirit of God working amongst us. It's one of, one of the ways this happens. One of the ways you experience the resurrection is, is, is through the Spirit of God working amongst us in his church. The Bible tells us that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. And one of the ways the Spirit of God works amongst us to reveal you know, the, 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 the resurrection power to, to, to let us experience the resurrection power. One of the ways we see people experiencing the resurrection power is through baptism. Like we see this all the time. We see these people, we've had many services, you know, where, where we've, had, we've had amazing moments. We, you know, we got the bap- baptistry up here. We even did one outdoors last summer. And you hear, you hear stories, you hear testimonies. We see videos even of people sharing like about their brokenness and where they come from, the how hard life looked like and just how, how desperate and hopeless things were. And as we watch them sort of talk about how Jesus stepped in and changed their life, we witness quite literally our future hope being pulled into our present reality. We watch it. We watch it happen before our very eyes. People who have been lost and people who have been broken, people who have been you know, deceived and they're just living in all of this junk, we, we, we watch at baptism quite literally our future hope being pulled into our present reality. This is what God wants to do in us. He wants to remind us that it's not just out there somewhere as this future hope. It is the hope of today. It's the hope of right now. It's the hope that will get you through this moment. It's the hope that will get you through this week. It's the hope that will guide you through whatever you're facing in this life. He wants us to experience the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit, bringing to life the areas of our life that are dead, the areas of our life that are, that are broken, the things that look impossible. And so after making this very shocking claim, Jesus performs one of the greatest miracles in the entire Bible. He actually raises Lazarus back to life. He actually does it. He doesn't just make this claim that I am the resurrection and the life. He, he says here, like, let, me show, let me show you. Let me prove it to you. Let me show you that I actually have power over death. And it says this in, in verse 38 as we skip down. Again, we're, we're kind of leaving out some of the story, but not because it's not important. Uh, it says this in verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. This is why I think she was just leveraging bumper sticker theology just, just a few verses earlier. Because she makes this claim like, like that God will do whatever you ask in his name. And then later on he says, all right, I want you to remove, remove the stone. And she says, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, he's been in there four days. Don't you know he, he smells? Don't you know, God? Like, like, 
I know, like, he'll do whatever you, you ask in his name, but, but he's already been dead four days. Like, he can't, you can't ask that. You can't ask that. In fact, if you read this in the King James Version, I just want to give you something for fun here. It actually says, when she says, by this time there's a bad odor, it actually says uh, that he stinketh. Okay, so he says he stinketh. So it's pretty amazing. Love the King James at times. It says, then, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Did I not tell you this? That if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I love how Jesus always just seems to be tender. Jesus just seems to be very, very tender with doubt in stories like this. Like he, he kind of understands it. He, he gets it. He knows. I mean, like, you think he'd be much more upset with her. Like, I, I was revealing this to you all along. You know who I am. I mean, this is, this is like opportunity for such a rebuke. She's doubting his methods. What do, what do you mean? You want us to, to, to like remove the stone? Seriously? You want us to roll this away? Don't you know he's been dead four days? Don't you know that it's impossible for anybody to live after three days? Don't you know? Don't you know how much he smells by now? Jesus says, look, like, look, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So often when we see death, and it can, be, it can be physical death, but often the deaths that we experience on a daily basis are different than that. They're defined differently than that. And oftentimes when we see death manifested in many different ways in our life, it has this, this, this incredible ability of just messing with our faith. And at best, what we offer up is just some religious pleasantry. We go into prayer and we say something, oh, God, I know that you can do whatever, you can, you can do anything. Uh, you know, whatever we ask in your name, it'll be done. And, and it just doesn't, it's hollow. It means nothing. You don't, it's not really how you feel. This rest of the story reveals what's really happening inside of Martha. She's hopeless. And Jesus is very tender with her in her hopelessness. It says in verse 41, so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. This is actually why oftentimes you see Jesus doesn't pray before he does a miracle because he doesn't, he doesn't have to, right? He's not praying, like, he's not praying before he, like, releases the kingdom of God into somebody's life. He's, he's doing this for the benefit of the people standing next to him, that they would believe that he was the one sent by the Father, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Verse 43 says, when he had done this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. 
Jesus wants you to understand this morning that death doesn't get the last word. Death doesn't get the last word. All across this room this morning are people who are great candidates for a resurrection story. All across this room, those of you watching online are great candidates for a resurrection story in your life. Why? Why could I say something like that? Why, why could I say that you're a candidate for a resurrection story? Why could I say that you're a candidate for, for seeing some things that are dead and broken in your life coming back to life again? Here's why. Because dead things don't stay dead when Jesus steps into your life. Dead things don't stay dead when Jesus steps onto the scene. Dead things don't stay dead when Jesus walks into the room. Dead things don't stay dead when Jesus encounters death. It just, it just doesn't happen. I believe that resurrections can happen all across this room, and those of you online, it can happen in your finances. It can happen in your marriage. Resurrections are available all across this room this morning in your relationships, in your jobs, your dreams, your career, your health. All of that is available to you because not only does Jesus want to save your life, which is important, he wants to resurrect your life. Salvation's big. Jesus says in John 10, 10, he says, I have come that you may have life and life to the fullest. Jesus says here, he says, I am the resurrection and the what? And the life. Okay, so he, he did not come just to save your soul. That's a big deal, huge. Something you couldn't have done for yourself. But he also came to resurrect your life. He came, he, came, he came to turn things around. He came to change the narrative. He came to write an ending you could have never written for yourself. He came to resurrect the brokenness and the pain and turn things around. Would you stand with me this morning? Revelation chapter 1, verses 18, Jesus says these words. He says, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I just love that Jesus shouts himself down with an amen right there. I love it. I love it. It's like, if you're not going to say it, I'm going to say it. Amen. This is good news. Right? Amen. He says, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. I've got the keys to hell. I love this scripture for a lot of reasons because it tells us that Jesus was resurrected to unlock death for everyone. And obviously we're talking about spiritual death, those who, who are dead in their sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. But he comes to unlock death for, for every single one of us who, who are walking in a type of death, who are experiencing death in our emotions, in our life, in some way, shape, or form, where something seems broken and off. He says, I have the keys He says the devil doesn't even have keys to his own house. He says, I've got the keys to that place. Like, I, I'm, I'm in charge. Like, I've, I've got this figured out. I, I, I've, I've, I've overcome death. The Bible tells us that before he ascended, he descended, okay? There's a lot, a lot of theology in that one little thing. But before he ascended, he descended. That He actually went to the depths of hell and quite literally took the keys. He unlocked death for those who had been dead, and he unlocks death for you and me. This is who he is because Jesus was not just a good moral teacher. He is the resurrection and the life. It's who he is. He is the God of the Old Testament. He's the same one. They're the same person. 
And he is alive and he's living within you through the power of the Holy Spirit, this same God. And he wants to breathe life into the areas of your life that just are not working right. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? If you're here today and you would just tell me, Pastor Jordan, Pastor Jordan, I need, I need to re-experience Jesus today as the resurrection and the life. I need him to breathe fresh life into the areas of my life that are not working right. I need the hope of the resurrection that is out there in my future to be pulled into my present reality. Can I just see your hands today? Every head's bowed, no one's watching. It's just us, it's just family in here. If you're watching online, you can just kind of start to nod or agree that you need prayer. And I just wanna pray over you today. I wanna declare some things over you today. Father, I pray for resurrection power to just invade this room right now. I just first want to confront all the hopelessness in Jesus' name. I want to confront all the, all the brokenness that exists that's represented in this place and to those online right now, God. We just confront it, and we call it what it is. We recognize what it is. But God, I thank you that, that because of who you are, death doesn't get the last word. Because of who you are and what you've overcome, death and brokenness and sickness and decay do not get the last word. And so I ask today, God, that resurrection power would invade this room, that it would confront and encounter us in our brokenness and in our, in our frustration, God, in, 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 our, in our pain, in our, in our fear this morning. I pray that the resurrection authority and power of God would encounter us and confront us right now. I pray that hope would begin to rise as you're breathing fresh life into areas that have been dead. I pray hope would rise in this place. So God, every marriage under the sound of my voice that is, that is, that is dying, God, that has experienced a, a, a form of death, I pray fresh life into those marriages in Jesus' name. People who are just in bondage to financial uh, problems, Lord, I pray for freedom in Jesus' name. I thank you that you came to set the captives free, and so I pray that every chain would be, would be unlocked in Jesus' name. Every wall would come tumbling down right now. Lord, set your people free in this house. Resurrection power in Jesus' name. I thank you that you were not just a good moral teacher who taught us how to live you know, a, a good life, but that you came through your Holy Spirit into us to actually empower us to live the way you taught us to live. To overcome, to rise above it, to not be defined by our brokenness and by our sin, but to be defined by your goodness and by your grace. And so God, would you just release hope into this place today? It's in Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.